0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation is entitled Suicide What to Say and Not Say to a Loss Survivor. It will be presented by Mickey and Bonnie Swade and Marcia Epstein.
1: Welcome to the Forum at All Souls. My name is Alex Westerfeld. I am chair of the Forum Committee. That's a group of people who put these presentations together, line up the speakers, and make this work. We've been doing this uh, for 80 years, looking at discussing significant issues in the contemporary world. Our speakers this morning present for about 35 minutes, 30-35 minutes. We take a brief break and then we Uh, come back together again for questions and answers. So today's speakers are Bonnie and Mickey Sway, who founded Suicide Awareness Survival Support, Missouri and Kansas, Mocan. Their son, Brett, took his life in December of 2003. Since that time, they've led a suicide loss support group that meets on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. They've been involved in many activities related to suicide awareness, suicide prevention, and suicide loss. Bonnie and Mickey will speak for about 15 minutes, and then they'll be followed by Marsha Epstein. Marsha has decades of experience in helping others. She grew up with much love and also a generous amount of chaos. The chaos provided the gifts of empathy and compassion. Her maternal grandparents, who had immigrated from Russia as young teens, added commitment to helping others. Her early volunteerism led to long service as director of the 24-Hour Crisis Center in Lawrence, Kansas. Under her leadership, that center became one of the first. On the United States' first suicide prevention network, which launched in 2001. Even earlier, at the request of a KU student whose father had died by suicide, Marcia and Pastor Thad Holcomb, who had lost his father to suicide, started a suicide loss support group, which Marcia still leads. Through the years, Marsha has experienced suicide losses in her large circle of family and friends. She brings that personal experience as well as professional training and experience to her work of supporting others with grief after suicide losses. Join me in welcoming our speakers.
2: Uh, Good morning. I'm Mickey Swade. I guess all of this started for Bonnie and I, uh, some 20 years ago when we lost our son Brett to suicide. And, uh, Bonnie wanted to make something positive come out of his, uh, his death. So first off, we tried to, uh, wanted to go into talking to kids, and educate them as far as mental illness. But uh, at that time, we were told we were putting ideas in their heads. So there was no talking to any youth 20 years ago. 20 years ago, suicide didn't exist. It was hidden. You could, you could tell everybody that it was some kind of an accident. Uh, so we took the uh, direction of uh, helping people that had lost someone to suicide We started a support group, uh, and we still facilitate the same support group that's been going on for uh, some, almost 20 years now, uh, helping people. It's good for people to get together with other people that have had the same loss, and uh, you come in feeling like you're the Lone Ranger, the only one that's ever experienced something like this, and All of a sudden, you start talking to other people in the room and and the group as a whole, and you realize that everybody is going through pretty much the same thing. And suicide is so different than any other kind of loss. Um, Your loved one has been murdered, and your loved one is a murderer. It's one way to look at that. Anyway, we quickly realized that uh, running a support group there's a little financial burden with it so we started SAS, Suicide Awareness Survivor Support and uh, it's been going for close to 20 years and we've kind of just retired and handed it down to the next generation get some younger people involved in in that that's how uh, SAS began Uh, and now Bonnie will
3: Good morning. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I'm going to be talking about careless mistakes that people make to someone that has lost someone to suicide. As a lost survivor, I first uh, got involved with this when a counselor who was a, a friend of mine said, Oh, suicide is just poo-poo. And I thought, Boo-poo, what is she talking about? And so At that point, I decided it was time maybe to get involved and try to educate people a little bit. Um, careless mistakes that people make, um, there's always two sides to death. One is the person who lost someone, and the other is people that have also lost someone. It's like a a rock going in the water and it pools and pools and pools. Um, And People that have lost someone to suicide sometimes feel abandonment. Um, it's uh, strange that when you first lose somebody, everybody's there to bring food and et cetera. And about, oh, um, I'd say a couple weeks later, it becomes less and less. So, and then it doesn't come at all. So, um, I just uh, felt like it was time to say something. One of the careless mistakes that people make is, I know how you feel. Well, you really don't know how I feel because you haven't experienced my, my feeling. So that's kind of a, a statement that you wouldn't want to make. Another one is, he or she lived a long life. Well, I don't think that I could say to someone, oh, he or she lived a long life because you don't know. And their life might have been sickness or something else. And so for living a long life, it's not necessarily a good thing to say. Um, let me know if there's anything I can do. Well, at the time when you lose someone, I don't think that anyone knows what anyone can do. So therefore, if you're proactive, you are going to just help them by bringing food of course, uh, by asking uh, if um, you could take their children for evening, um, if you could um, just help them in any way that they cannot try to do for themselves, and you really don't know what to do. Um, let me know if there's um, anything I can do. Well, I already talked about that. He or she lived a long life. Okay. Um, I don't know that we can say that. Right. He or she is in a better place. Well, we're here as church people, so I don't want to say that you don't know if there's a better place. Obviously, some of you think that heaven is a better place. Um We're Jewish, and I don't necessarily uh, believe in that. That's okay. That's okay to say um, because at least you're showing that you do care. Um what was the blessing? Well, sometimes suicide is not a blessing. Um some people think suicide is selfish and we know people that have lost someone to suicide, we really don't feel that it's a self selfish act. It's a mental, not a selfish act. Um you're holding up so well. Well, holding up what? <laughs> I don't know. So um you're just um You just hear a lot of those things that people say. I thought you would be over by this by now. That's a good one. Because really, we're never over it. You know that death is with us forever and ever. So to say it's time for you to be over it, it's kind of ridiculous to say that. Um, God needed another angel in heaven. Well, maybe I, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, perhaps uh, maybe our loved ones go to heaven. I don't know because nobody's ever come back to tell me. So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, You're the man or the woman of the house now. If someone has died in those children, it's a lot of responsibility to put on a child that they're the ones that have to keep everyone together. So, again, I think you would want to avoid that. Um, suicide is selfish I mentioned that Um, don't make comments that suggest that people were responsible for the suicide that's another mistake avoid saying the person's name is not right you want to say our son's name was Brett and so we want to when we talk about Brett we want to be sure to use his name because that's important for us and for you I think Um, sometimes the thoughtfulness statements, uh, it's best not to say anything. If you really don't know what to say, all you can say is, I care. And I'm here if you need me. And if you don't need me, then I won't bother you. So those are some of the things that I found that people say when you lose somebody to suicide. And now Marsha's going to speak. How about that? So I
4: want to say that when I come to talk about any issue about suicide and I look at people who are in the room, my assumption is that most of us have some kinds of direct experiences. And when I think about it, I think about that means some people have had thoughts of suicide, have attempted suicide. Some people have the experience of suicide grief. Some people have the experience that may be current of supporting loved ones who are suicidal, trying to help them have the ability to stay alive. Some of us do volunteer paid work that relates to helping people, and sometimes those are people who are suicidal. And so I always think of it as there's a lot of personal experience in the room. And so for us, for Bonnie and Mickey and Suede and, and me, Bonnie and Mickey and me, um, I think it's really important, you know, that we get the, the, the Q&A time with you all. So um, that that is really meaningful. I, I asked Bonnie and Mickey to be first because I tend to get really excited and I can go on too long. So we'll see how this works. But I've got my phone, so I'll pay some attention to time. I also have to say Alex is standing in the doorway. Alex is the one who reached out to me to ask about uh, helping with this topic Alex and I go way back, and Alex was my research professor for my first year of my MSW program. So I have to say that as somebody who, in general, throughout my school life probably hated school, who couldn't go straight through to get a bachelor's degree, but kept getting pushed, you need to have an MSW, because I was the director of the crisis center. I was doing all these things, but I didn't have any initials after my name. And so when I finally went back to school, it was really hard because I had already been doing a lot of work, I knew some of the faculty from community projects. I knew lots of providers. I was a provider. I was doing all this stuff. And I was suddenly in this world of thinking, maybe I don't know anything. I was really not confident. I was really, had some hard experiences in school. And when Alex asked me, the way he asked me about possibly doing this, he wrote this letter and uh, this email and said, "You know, I don't know if you remember me. And I'm thinking, you don't know if I remember you. Oh, my gosh. The first day of the research class, which, you know, for some people is going to feel pretty intimidating. I'm not a data person. I'm not a stats person. You know, I mean, I, I believe in needing to know what's meaningful. So it made sense to me. But what he did for the first day of class was he showed this this pictures, 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 pictures of all these people. And, you know, we're sitting there like, OK, this is our research class. What is this? These Who are all these people? And what he was telling us and and what he said and whatever his words were, that research is about making sure we really are helping people, that what we're doing is really meaningful and beneficial to them. It's about the people and don't ever lose sight of that. And for that and many reasons... I, I owe a lot of my being able to complete my grad program because I went to school going, I can quit at any time. I'm the director of the crisis center. We've got two little kids. My husband and I are both working. We've got all this stuff going on. And if I don't want to finish this program, I don't have to, but you were one of the reasons that it's like, I'll do this. <laughs> thank you, Alex Westerfeld. yes, yes, yes. And in thanking people, I, I always want to thank my husband, Kyle, who has been right there supporting me and all of the hugely demanding weird stuff that i've done that a lot of people don't want to do in terms of work and crisis stuff and what that really looks like even still um because now i work privately and i get phone calls from people who are working with me and i get communications from people who want to work with me and it can happen at any time and and we just you know i i am able to do what i do because i have this wonderful person who's willing to do a lot of things to make that possible, Um, who also went to this particular church during his middle school and high school time living in Kansas City. So it's old home week for Kyle, right? Anyway, so I, I wanted to say those things. I also want to say, you know, when I think about suicide and how individual it is, part of what I've always seen is what's going around in the world, what's going on in this country and other parts of the world, as well as in people's individual experiences, all of that affects all of us. Um, And in the suicide communities, I don't know how else to say that, but the, the groups that I'm really involved with, international groups related to suicide, a lot of our emphasis is on social justice. And so things like how different practices affect people, how different policies in different parts of the country and issues about legislating things, um, all kinds of things, and the wars that are in other parts of the country right now, you know, that that affects all of us, that heaviness is with all of us. And some of us just are wired to be more affected by things that we experience our emotions more intensely. And that's relevant to suicide, and it's relevant to us as people. So I, I, I needed to acknowledge that there's a lot going on. And so here we are at this time in the world, where there's so much heaviness. And then if you listen to any media, it's the holidays, and for those of us who have losses of important people, whether by suicide or otherwise, there's that mixture of things aren't the way they used to be, you know, personally. Um, so, so there are a lot of different influences, and I put together a PowerPoint kind of to give me a little bit of focus, but it was it's just really important to say overall and and that suicide isn't something people want to talk about, which is, you know, what Mickey was saying. You know, in this country, because I was the director at the Crisis Center, I knew in 1985, in this country, we were looking at suicide death rates of young people that had tripled and were anticipated to continue to escalate. And that is something that caused a big alert in certain parts of the country in terms of literal, that there were what we're referred to as clusters where there were several young people who died by suicide in a short amount of time. And it also brought the concern on the level of what's going to happen if young people in this country continue to increase the, the amount of them who die by suicide, what's that going to mean to this upcoming generation, which was, you know, kids in the 1980s. Um, so, so I've, known a lot, been exposed to a lot about suicide for a very long time. And what I know is that it really is very individual, as well as there being some things in common. You know, when when Bonnie said, you know, you can't tell somebody, I know how you feel or what this is like for you. None of us even who've experienced suicide losses can know that about somebody else. Because, you know, the way that I think about things now is, Every single one of us has a lot of different identities, you know, and the intro information that I provided to Alex was more personal than a lot um because to me that's what shaped who I am that's that's how I ended up on the path I ended up on was the personal stuff um, and along the way, yeah, I have a lot of years of professional work, but it, the the groundwork for for being a person who would be a helper um that is something that was already there um, way before I ever did any kind of school studies or even a lot of the volunteer. That's what led me to become a volunteer in in doing hard stuff with crises that people face. So... So I think about those those individual identities, and there are a lot of them, and I'm not going to tell you all of mine, but I didn't want it just to be professional because it's not just professional for any of us. Bonnie has decades of experience as a school counselor working with you, you know, but that wasn't the first thing that, that she needed you to know about her either, you know. It's the personal stuff. It's the heart that we bring to each other, to the world, that to me makes a big difference. You know, I, I've I've said, you know, there are identities and then there are the experiences, right? We get shaped by our experiences and we keep having those. And at whatever point in time, a lot of our perspectives are related to that combination of the influences of our identities and our experiences. And so we have certain ways of thinking about things. And for me, I know that what I think about suicide and what I think about suicide loss isn't probably very common <laughs> in terms of the amount of experiences that i have personally and professionally but i think it's important for for each of us to to be able to just consider that you know where did you learn about grief even you know if you think about what were the role models if any that you had about what healthy grief is supposed to look like and then you compound that with well what are the ideas that you picked up along the way about what suicide is like you know for me i uh, you know, I was looking at different things, trying to figure out, you know, what might be helpful to say. And I don't know what's helpful to say. Different things will resonate with different people. And I have to say that brings me to my brother who uh, who died uh, four years ago, and he had been in the Navy. And he told me, you know how you know when spaghetti's done? It's like oh, I don't know. He goes, you throw it at the refrigerator, and if it sticks, it's done. And that's the way I am in my work with people. I kind of throw out some ideas, knowing that some of them will stick, and I kind of look for that. You know, can I tell that that's really resonated with somebody, and then we can stay on that path? Some of it won't stick, but I don't know. I can't assume I know what's going to be really meaningful to anybody, but there are a lot of things. And as I say that, you know, one of my other notes to myself was everything that I've learned that's most important to me is directly related to people's experiences that I've had the honor of hearing, of being with them, having them share that. And I know that's true with Bonnie and Mickey, you know, how we are with our support groups and people who contacted about us about that is informed by stories from years and years of people, different kinds of stories, different kinds of experiences. Um, And and when I say that, I want to say some of the hard stuff because this could have been close to any of you, my work, my suicide bereavement group, has included people who have experienced what I refer to as suicide murder, um, somebody who was suicidal, who also believed in their that this loved person also had to die because they would not be able to live without them. Um, so I've been with people through that kind of very, very traumatic grief, even with people who would have that and say... It's no more traumatic than anybody else's. Everybody's experience is probably the one of the worst things they've ever had, and when we are never here to compare what's worse than something else. I'm also part of a group uh, international group of people who are specifically healthcare care providers, mental health and behavioral health providers who have suicide losses personally and or professionally. You know, and for for that, that population, and that could be some of you, we have these additional things about what we're supposed to know. Bonnie is a counselor. I'm this mental health social worker. I'm supposed to know these things. And yet, in my own personal life, I have people who
5: die by suicide.
4: And so, you know, there, there are lots of different kinds of experiences people have. And what we know is that we have to be able to talk about those. And when we talk about those, the question and answer that can happen after, you know, when we're at that point, um the things that we that we need to to talk about that we need to do, you know, we we learn from each other. You ask a question, you share an experience, and it and it resonates in some way for somebody else. And I see that all the time, and that's why I love group experiences. So, um, in terms of basics, and I, you know, I haven't moved the PowerPoint. When it's like, oh yeah, there's that too. Um, uh, I might quickly do that. But suicide grief is. Incredibly painful in almost all situations for the people who are left behind. And that's a lot of people who might be impacted. Um, I've reached out to friends I know who are journalists and and you know local new, news people and et cetera, because they are covering stories that are traumatic for them. They're covering stories, and they also have their own experiences, right? So some of them are also survivors of their own personal suicide losses, as well as doing this coverage and trying to figure out how they're supposed to say that to the world through their writing or whatever. I mean, it's just it's just really hard. And if I was thinking about one commonality, I would say the amount of pain and. Also, the exhaustion from the pain physically as well as emotionally, Um, that sometimes people get sick, they have health crises. Um, That probably would not have happened at that time if they had overall been feeling better. You know, when we're feeling better and we're able to do the things and we're eating pretty well and we're doing whatever our exercise is, that is our level of exercise, you know, we, we tend to stay healthier, we tend to be more aware, um, and sometimes we just can't concentrate, you know, we just can't, uh, you know, I've had people say, my water got shut off because the mail comes and I set it on the table and I haven't looked at it, and then I come home one day from, you know, and, and I I haven't, I don't have any water. I have a friend who, after her husband died at some point, she said, finally her coworkers said, you have got to take a shower. She couldn't do those things, but she was now a widowed mom of two kids. She couldn't quit her job. She could, didn't have a long time off, but she couldn't. She just couldn't focus on everything. I remember that same person saying, "I think I'm living on Cheetos and Diet Coke." And I said, "You know what? There are worse things than Cheetos and Diet Coke. You'll be okay. You know, if that's what you need to do right now, that's what you do right now." And I'm a big, big believer that we have to do what we have to do, and. We don't necessarily have the ability to do the healthiest things when we're in the most pain. And so we do the things that we can and we get through to a certain point. And rather than shaming ourselves for what we have done, we can say, I honor those keto's and Diet Coke, and I'm also ready to reduce that and add something better, you know? And I think that's an important thing. When we shame ourselves for how we've done things, then we can't move forward very well. I, re- I remember one woman who came to the to my group who drank worse and worse and worse and worse and worse for the first year after the love of her life died. And it came up in side conversations with some members of the group because we had people who were in recovery related to their own alcohol and other use. And, you know, like, is it, is it really okay for this person to be here? We know that she's been drinking before she came. You know, and and in all likelihood, that insulated mug that she has with her has some alcohol in it because that's the level of drinking she has. And so we had some conversation about that. But the reality was, I don't think she would have been able to stay alive if she hadn't had that alcohol during that year. And she's not the only person I've known who needed to do something like that. I'm not advocating for that, but I'm also saying there was no shaming her for that. There was support. There was expression of concern but there was. You can absolutely be at this meeting for suicide grief. You can absolutely be here. You're always going to be welcome. Um, we don't want you to drive. If we tell <laughs> you not to do that, but but you know, we want you to be here. We we need you to have support. So I don't know. I'm I'm just saying it's it's really hard. And sometimes that's the part that um, people who haven't had a close experience don't realize. And like Bonnie said, part of the hard part is the people who who kind of disappear from you. Who you think? I think about one friend and she said this neighbor, you know, when when her my friend Jamie's son died, Jamie and Tom, um, their son died by suicide. And they had this neighbor who's like, oh, you know, just, you know, whatever I can do, let me know. And Jamie said that she realized that any time that she pulled into her driveway, if that neighbor was out, the dr- the neighbor immediately went out. the house. She never even would talk to her. And so finally, Jamie confronted her. It's like, you know, I, I realize that whenever you see me, you disappear. And I just need to tell you that I noticed that, you know. It's not helpful, <laughs> but that's that's what can happen sometimes. So I'm going to kind of quickly flip through some of these slides just to see what I thought was maybe going to be meaningful. Um, I I do really love this and because I think a lot of times we think that this is about. We weren't caring enough. We weren't paying enough attention. And that's just not the truth. It's just not the truth. And when I think overall about what we can do, I think, and this is kind of my guidance for myself, I want to be the best person I can be with how I interact with people, the random people that I chat with at the grocery, as well as people I'm close to. And I also need to know I don't have the control over what they are going to do in their lives. But I can at least know that I tried to be a good person in their lives. And that is really what I encourage everybody. We can all do that much. So some of the uniqueness is stuff I've already been talking about. But I point it out because sometimes what we think is that it's this one thing. And if we only know this one thing, we can make sure that we do the right way with that one thing and nobody will ever die by suicide. And that just is not our truth at this point. That's not something. There's not one thing that makes somebody end up dying by suicide. Um, and, And what it is, there are going to be some things in common and some things not in common. There's a notion overall, based on research, that overall what leads somebody to be so close that they can actually die by suicide is that what they believe about themselves is they're a burden And they do not belong. And they also have the experience that has made them able to do something life-threatening, life-ending. So some of us might feel like a burden and like we don't belong. And that may not be what anybody else thinks about us. But if we believe that, that's hugely painful. It's very difficult to live with that kind of idea about oneself, that people would be better off if I was dead. And I've had that conversation with people who say, you know, my wife will be better off. We'll, she'll get the insurance money, and and she will, and and in gently talking with this person about what's fueling suicide, I would ask, you know, you know, I can tell that you really love your your wife, and you believe she'd be better off, and I'm wondering, have you have you talked to her about that? Do you know that that's what she thinks, and not in a confrontive way, and I think that's the difference in terms of having a connection with somebody, building connection, respecting what they're saying, and just inviting them to explore something Sometimes that can make a difference because anybody I've ever talked to, um, and I'm not saying that represents everybody, but you know, that, that kind of gives them some thought, well, you know, what would that really mean to your wife and your kids? Let's talk about that. What do I know about the impact of suicide loss on kids? Because I've worked with a lot of families and uh, and I've seen a lot of kids and I've and I've seen some of them grow up after, you know, for years after their dad's loss. In this case, I'm thinking of and what they went through to get to sort of another side where they're healthier now than they were. Um, but the, there's a huge impact of suicide deaths. So so it's it's unique. And. You know, it doesn't really matter what's said on death certificates in the level of I've had people who know that the, the person they they cared about died by suicide, but for whatever reason, sometimes it's because the one, the, the medical examiner person, the coroner, depending on the size of the community, believes it's too stigmatizing and that it might be damaging to record it as a suicide and they don't because literally there's some body processes that happen that we die from. But it's, you know, do we know for sure whether that was intentional? So we just don't get the answers. We can't get the answers directly. You know, we can't now have the conversation about all the things that led to that. And I think of I think of suicide happening when abruptly the switch has flipped and that person can do nothing other than die. They do not believe there's any option at that point. And they don't predict that far in advance necessarily. And I also know there are some situations where truly somebody has planned a death, um, but I but in talking with people who've survived what could have been lethal suicide attempts, they didn't they didn't know far in advance. It just they couldn't take it anymore at that moment. So we've got all this stuff. We've got all these questions, and I and I do put a note actually that seriously that I do I do work with a grief team, and one of those people is an intuitive medium, and we do talk about afterlife communication in a different workshop. <laughs> This is what I was saying at the beginning, the kinds of experiences. And I think it's really important to know that these experiences are part of our identities and they do affect how we experience suicide grief. Um, the the numbers of experiences that we have in those different categories. And we aren't just one thing. That's always my thing. We're not just one thing. You know, if we were just one identity, then it'd be easy to figure out how to help somebody. But we're all multifaceted. So. Because this comes up, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stuff, and that's my ending point, supposedly. I'll be quick. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote, we have a friend, my husband and I have a friend who he refers to as a daughter, um, even though she's older than we are. But um, Donna worked alongside Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. The Kubler-Ross stages are about people who are dying and know that they are dying. It was never about grief. And so, you know, Bonnie was saying this, there's there's no timetable, there's no end, and it's not an illness. It's not, grief is not an illness. It's a normal human response to the loss of a being who we love. So we get changed, this person, or not related to suicide, but a pet can die. And that's a huge loss for people, you know? And I then I talk with people about that too. We're, we're, we're not the same. The future's not the same. Everything's just been smashed to bits. And we got to figure out how to pull it back together. And that's a long process. I love this image because literally, if you think about that, when your hand is in front of your face, you don't see much else. But when it moves away, you can still see your hand, but you still are attached to your hand. And that's the same thing with the grief. It's always there, but it's not always there. But it's not like a timetable thing, and it's not like it moves away and it never comes back. On our 40th anniversary, we did this fun thing. We're kayakers. We went to this place we'd never been. And I'm crying because we had a very small family wedding and my mom and my brother um, and were we're people who were with us who have died. And it's just like, it's 40th anniversary. My mom should be here and she's not. And so that happens. Guilt, as I say, our feelings are legit. Our feelings are whatever they are, but it doesn't mean that the thought that goes with it is really accurate. Feeling guilty doesn't mean you caused the death by something you did or didn't do. Um, So some of these things. There are also ways that we get stronger. I know that my compassion comes from, as I say, the chaos. If I hadn't been through things I'd been through in in, in, uh, my growing up, I don't think I would ever have been on the path that I'm on. Um, And there you go. Your grief doesn't get smaller. You got to build your life. And I love this image because that's what it's saying. People think it's going to shrink. No, it just doesn't get as much space because our jar gets bigger. You've got to grapple with it, and you've got to remember what you did right. Frank Campbell, who's a national person related to suicide grief, he said, you know, we put up billboards along the highway about all kinds of things. We need a billboard that reminds us to remember what we did right. Holidays, you just have to figure out what is good and what isn't good for you. Support. Bonnie's been talking about that. You've got to be active. You know, you don't disappear. If it's somebody you really care about, do the things. Go to Walmart and buy them toilet paper because they need toilet paper and tissues. And if they have paper plates, even though, yeah, ecologically, we don't love paper plates, but dang it, if you don't have the energy to wash dishes, paper plates are a gift. So do these things and talk about, you know, Bonnie said that, talk about people's loved ones. This I love because what it's saying is that the person with the most experience of the hardship is the one who gets to dump to whomever. Other people do not deserve and need to get support from the one who's there, who's most affected. These are, There's some national things. I've got, we've got some stuff here. Alex said there's a little break before we do Q&A. Um, we put some things on this table. My website has a page on suicide grief that has a lot of things that are helpful. Tonight, for those who are family members, a parent of any age who died by any cause. This is an annual thing with the compassionate friends. There actually is a gathering in the Kansas City area, I think the Johnson County side and maybe others. But but the concept is this lighting of candles happening across the globe at seven o'clock in whatever time people are in honor and memory of children uh, who've lost by any cause of death, not specifically suicide. Some of the books, I put a, brought a couple here. Um, this center, this is from the Dougie Center, is excellent family stuff for grief. It's a national center. Lindsay Doolittle is dear to Bonnie and Mickey and me. She's a art teacher in the Kansas City area and with young ones after the death of her husband, who is a KCK police officer. Um, this book, Four Children, I've got a copy if you just want to look at it. This isn't specific to suicide, but this is an awesome book, and Megan Devine has all kinds of stuff on social media that's really helpful. Um, So with that in mind, Alex, what's supposed to happen during this little break?
1: Thank you all for being with us and sharing. Appreciate it, and thank you, Marsh, for the kind word. Uh, Very quickly, next week's presentation is titled Miracle of Innocence with Lamonte McIntyre and Valerie Burton. So we turn now to the Q&A portion of the program. So if you have a question, we appreciate it if you line up over here because that gives our presenters a sense of how many people there are and how much time they have to answer particular questions. And one question per per person until everybody's had a chance to ask their questions. And please keep your... Uh, questions, two questions, rather than comments or statements at this point. Let me be
6: first. Um, The um, one experience I have with suicide, one of the two experiences I have, is that the the family, you know, talking about grief-stricken families, but in this case, um, family was toxic to the person. Could you guys address the idea that this process of grief is actually An awakening or so how do you process the idea that a family is toxic to to the person who committed suicide
4: i will start by saying you know there are all kinds of dynamics in families and that is true and i'm not sure exactly sort of where your question is coming from like how to respond to the family members who you perceive as maybe having been damaging to the one who died or can you can you give us like I, a I, in one report.
6: case that I'm thinking about the uh, the family was very insistent that he become this fundamentalist Christian and mm-hmm. and then were taking intervention to because he walked away from it and they you well know, pers- had a doctor prescribe drugs to him that were causing him to be suicidal and so the family itself was responsible for actions that resulted in the in the murder of their son okay
4: and so for me the way that i have to approach that is even though i don't agree at all with what that family intervention was there is a level where that family believed that this is the way to help this person so i have to even though i can believe what they did was absolutely wrong there was some way for them that they thought this needed to happen. Uh, not the death, but change. Okay, so there's that. And I also know that some of us find ways to cope with incredible hardship. Um, I don't feel comfortable saying that it's all about the family, That—that that is how this person ended up not being able to live. I'm not saying the family contributed positively to the person either but I know it's complicated you know and when I say when I think about hardship that people endure um in my work with crises I've also that has included people who have experienced prolonged horrific sadistic abuse um what used to be referred to as ritualistic abuse and I've seen people be able to survive horrors we know that there are people who were able to survive, for example, the Holocaust, you know, that there are people whose, who's, you know, these things we can't imagine having to live through. So, so I can't say this person's, any person's suicide death is 100% from this other person. And still I can have my own belief that's like, this is absolutely wrong. I would never treat somebody the way that you treated this person. And now those of us who love this person in ways and, and, and accepted them, loved them as they really were, not trying to change them, were devastated by this person's death. And it's natural that we may feel angry towards the provider who gave medication that could have increased suicide risk as well as the family who encouraged that. So it's very complicated, it's very complicated. I don't know if that helps.
2: In our family, we've we've got four children. Brett was the oldest. And when he died, our son, uh, who is the youngest, felt relief. Uh, We learned that Brett used to tease the the younger kids in the family uh, in different ways, and he took away us from the rest of the kids. We spent more time dealing with Brett than we did with the rest of the family because of Brett's, his nature. Uh, he, he literally took time that we should have given to the other kids, but uh, we had to deal with him and his, uh, his various problems. It was, we would have now more time to give to the rest of the family.
3: And I just want to say <clears throat> that suicide is an individual thing. We had an incident where we heard that a boy had been in uh, Topeka um, and at the uh, Messengers uh, Clinic, and um, on the way home, on the way home, after he'd been there for three years, on the way home, he opened the door and jumped over the bridge. So the family is not really responsible. Person who does the suicide is the one we have to keep in mind is the responsible party and you shouldn't really blame anybody else. That's just my feeling.
4: So you hear that we have different pieces of the picture and hopefully that's helpful to know there's not just one way and there's not just one situation that resulted
5: in a family and conflicts and suicide. Uh, hello, my name is Anita. Um, I had a brother who committed suicide several years ago and what I noticed was nobody wanted to talk about it. I mean, nobody. I felt very lonely in that time, but I have noticed on the news that there was, there's a movement to try to um, diminish the stigma and the shame that is associated with suicide. And um I just wondered if you had heard about it, if that movement is I think this was oh, it's back eastern California, it always seems like it's the coast. But if um you had heard about it and if it's you know um, coming to the Midwest, are we gonna, you know, finally deal with the shame and the stigma that goes
3: with suicide? You wanna say something first? Um, 20 years ago, as Mickey had told you, nobody wanted to talk about suicide. It didn't exist. Well, nowadays it does exist. And I think there is a movement, if you want to call it a movement of, of people, um, that are involved that let other people know that it is a stigma, but it's okay. Um, and it, um, it leaves person that lost somebody in kind of a, a place. And so it helps them to know that someone is out there that is helping. And I think Kansas City and Johnson County has places and things that show you that. You need the church and the um has a, a place where they have suicide um seminars. And so there are places that you can find where you couldn't find it years ago.
4: And you all are one of those places, right? You've had yeah. a series of speakers related to suicide issues because you know it's important. I think it's I don't know about a specific movement, you know, in terms of that. What I know is that there is a lot of recognition that for starters Suicide is not caused by mental illness. And there's this, I was thinking that our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention did a big data analysis that was published in 2018. And that was one of the findings that couldn't be shouted out to the world loudly enough. Suicide happens related to circumstances in people's lives. It doesn't only happen to people who have some kind of severe mental health diagnosis. So, so there's that stigma when it's attached to mental health because we have the stigma about having whatever. And I don't even like the phrase mental health, but um, so it's very complicated. Suicide is related to social justice, right? If I, you know, there's a a gentleman in in St. Louis, Sean Joe, who's a, a black man, social worker, professor, who's led a lot of work related to racial disparity and suicide, and and when Sean talks about the increase in black youth dying by suicide, he talks about it from the framework of imagine growing up with the notion, particularly black males, that you are going to die young anyway. No matter what you do, you're going to die young. You're not going to make anything of yourself. When you grow up with this low expectation of what your life potential is, then you may do some riskier things because what difference does it make? I'm going to be dead soon anyway. You know, there, are they're, things about inequities related to health care. They're all housing, jobs, all kinds of things. We can have like in Lawrence, Kansas and the University of Kansas, there are things about protections for sexual orientation and gender identity. But that doesn't mean that you can't be fired or or your landlord can't uh, have you or the person can't rent to you is they can't say it's because you're trans, but they cannot rent to you because they don't want to rent to a trans person. As long as they don't say it out loud, it can still happen. So so there's social justice stuff. so yes, there's absolutely a need to change what we think about suicide as one of the moms long you know long-term member of my support community says she thinks about it as suicide being cancer of the soul. That's the way she thinks about her son's death was it was the same kind of a thing where something attacked his soul in a way that he got to the point where he could no longer live. So we all need to do our parts to talk about suicide, to be open about what we think, to to try to break down the barriers where we can. Uh, This isn't anything shameful. Every being is going to die. And sadly, some people die by suicide. And often those people who die by suicide were experiencing Pain for a long time that people didn't recognize maybe because they hit it so well lots of different things but it if we can start having those conversations one on one and keep having them and keep planting that seed i think that's that's how things are going to change it does need to change because the stigma becomes directed not only the person who's struggling with suicide or after they died how people see them but also with the loved ones right because if you were a good enough i'm i'm saying this and i don't believe it but people like well you were his sister how did you not help him it's like and you know you did whatever you could based on the information you had so so we've got we've got to work against that because it harms everybody it keeps people in silence and silence doesn't save people from suicide either yeah so that's a really powerful question thank you
7: um, before I went to college, um, I would say in my teen years and earlier than that in the Chicago area, I was friends with a young man who lost his father. His father was a pilot and had a heart attack. So he I I really believe that he just didn't feel like he fit in, in any place. So when I returned from uh, my first year of college, briefly for Christmas vacation, my mother told me, that this person had committed suicide. And prior to that, he had had a disagreement with his mother about whether he should have an automobile or not. He was actually had a motorcycle. And in any case, his mother refused that request. He then mentioned to his girlfriend that he was thinking about committing suicide and she told him to go ahead. So my reaction to that when I got back was number one, what kind of a girlfriend would say something like that? And number two, it must have been really painful for this young man to feel like he didn't fit in any place, and that that there was only one only one possibility left, and that was to take his life. So I don't I don't know if there's a question there or not. We're supposed to ask questions.
4: Well, it's, it's an important story that you shared and, you know, we can't ever know all of the specifics, but what you described fit with that notion that I don't belong. Nobody cares, you know, and what do people who were part of that person's life do with whatever they think about their responsibility was? That's, that's sad because it didn't need to be that kind of treatment of him no matter what. It's hard. Yeah. Know?
3: And I would like to say that we always say committed suicide. Um, Died by suicide is much softer. So just keep that in mind. Um, Committed means uh, it goes back to many, 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 many years ago when people were put into insane asylums and they were committed to the asylum. So suicide is not an asylum. Died by suicide is better.
1: So, Mickey, I'm curious, when you were talking, you said when there's a suicide in the family, you know someone who was murdered, and you know someone who is a murderer. So, I'm wondering, is that a common realization or perception among people who lose someone to suicide? And is it helpful or shameful to them?
2: Usually, I don't say that other than in the support group. Uh, because they're the ones that are dealing with the loss. And if you think about it, there there are two sides to it. They have lost someone that's been murdered, and their loved one is a murderer. Um, it's just a different way of thinking about it. Uh, and... If you're not familiar with suicide, if you've not lost someone, it's, it brings it home a little closer.
4: Okay. So, just to, to add a bit about that, there's not going to be any language that's perfect for everybody yeah. or for every situation, you know? And so, we want to be as sensitive as we can to other people. And, like you're saying, you, you might speak differently to others who experience suicide loss than speaking in general because it, it it might confuse people. So it's important to have that clarification. Thanks. Um,
6: we have a YouTube question um, from Craig LeBeau. Um, how do you know when a threat is real versus manipulation?
4: I'm going to jump in quickly because anybody who talks about suicide, we just have to assume it's real. If that's what they need to do to be able to get some kind of help, we have to keep doing that help. We have to do what we can. And I also know, like when I think about a friend, and and I'm thinking about a specific friend who was repeatedly talking about suicide and self-harm, what I tried to get my friend to do with me, instead of calling me after she'd done something to herself, was, could you possibly try to reach me before you do that? Could we have a chance to talk before So what we know is that, yeah, we have to take it seriously. We also, I'm going to say, need to have some compassion because when the family member, friends, whomever, have heard it again and again and again and again, and they're feeling scared and helpless, sometimes they say things that aren't ideal. And sometimes they don't take it seriously because, well, he's been talking about this for five years and he hasn't done it, you know, but this might be the time when that person needs to act. So always, always take it seriously is the, is the best. And that's one of the times when, you know, if you, when people don't know what to do, yeah, you can call the 988 crisis line. At least that's somebody who will say, okay, these are some things you might try, or maybe even would your person talk to me right now? You know, we, we want to try to
1: build supports with people. Mickey, Bonnie, and Marsha, thank you again for coming.
0: Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. The All Souls Forum is a production of the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. And now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon, followed by the Happy Hour at 3 p.m. and the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.